Welcome to City on a Hill Church, Forest Hills podcast. We exist to lead people to love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coahforesthills.org. Now, we've been in a long journey in the book of Genesis that's taken us from last September till now. We're getting very close to the end of the book. Uh, And to kind of recap the book of Genesis, it really is a story in two parts. The first part is Genesis 1 through 11, which is how God created the whole world for people. It's the story of creation and really is intended to tell us how God's creation reveals the beauty, the goodness, and the truth of God. The second part of the book, which dominates most of the book, it's chapters 12 through 50, where it's a people who are called to bless the whole world. God has narrowed the story down to one man, Abraham, and from him a family would come, a nation would be birthed in such a way that they would go on to be a blessing to all people, that those who curse them would be cursed, those who bless them would be blessed. And so the idea is that they would be a blessing to all people. And we see and have seen through this story God's continued persistent faithfulness to this profoundly messed up family. Every single turn, it seems like they're doing something dumber and dumber. And God has walked with them through their failures and their mistakes and their unwillingness to wait upon God and taking things into their own hands. We've seen God walk with them through things that weren't even their fault. It's just a part of living in a broken world through loss. We've seen God walk through them and show them his steadfast love over and over again. And as we get to the last section of the book, we focus on Joseph. And when we look at Joseph's life in comparison to the rest of his family members, he looks like a saint. This guy looks like the absolute best of the best, and he seems to choose to obey God over and over again, trusting God is faithful. Something is very different about him. Now, surely he is not perfect. Joseph is not a perfect person. In fact, if you look at chapter 37, it does appear he's bragging a little bit. Um, he goes to his brothers and he says, look at the new coat the dad just bought me. When I, was in, when I was in like seventh grade, the hottest jacket you could possibly own was a Chicago Bulls starter jacket. Anybody remember the Chicago Bulls starter jacket? If you were not alive at that point or don't remember that, it was a multicolored team color. So it had black and red and white. And this is like the heyday of Michael Jordan. And it's a big puffy coat that I was going to wear in like July because I wanted to look cool. This is basically what his dad has bought him. He's bought him this multicolored Technicolor starter jacket. And he's telling his brothers, look at how good I look in this jacket. He goes on and he says, hey, brothers, I want you to listen to my dream, which says all of you are going to bow down to me. And I don't know about you, but both of those would be enough to make me want to kill my brother. So I understand where his brothers were coming from. He is bragging a bit. But when you look at his life as a whole, it's quite unbelievable how well Joseph turns out. He turns out pretty well because all the odds are stacked against him. He goes from doted upon son to slave here now in Egypt We see that he was once the apple of his father's eye. He was his favorite, and he is now alone in Egypt. We see in Genesis 39, verse 1, that he was sold into slavery. He was sent down to Egypt. And it tells us he was brought down there, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. His fortunes have completely changed and he's experienced every possible setback you can imagine. He's been betrayed. 
He has experienced tragedy. He's experienced loss. He's going to be falsely accused. He's been forgotten. And if there's anyone in all of the scriptures who could say, you know what, I'm just going to mail it in. I'm going to live however I want to live. I'm just going to repeat the cycle of brokenness that I've seen in my family for generations. It's Joseph. So what makes Joseph different? Maybe this is you. Maybe this is your past. And you look back into your family history and you see substance abuse that you're fighting to break the cycle of. Maybe there's been a cycle of divorce or there's just been a cycle of failure over and over and over again. And it seems just inevitable that you or someone you know is just going to fall right back into the same pattern. How do you possibly overcome that type of brokenness? How did Joseph do it? We look at Joseph and it's like, how did this guy break all the barriers? How did he defy all the odds? And is it just simply that he had great willpower? Is it that he was just more determined than his brothers? Is it just that he worked harder? Now, clearly, he's a gifted man. He's a very skilled man. Everything he touches seems to turn to gold. But is that really the story that the Bible's trying to tell us? That you just need to do better and work harder and rise above, and you'll get where you need to go. There's a phrase that bookends both Joseph's story, but it also bookends your story that tells us how we can overcome these things. And it's in chapter 39, verse 2, and chapter 39, verse 21, where it says these words, the Lord was with Joseph. Say that, say that again with me. The Lord was with Joseph. And the truth of the scriptures is that the Lord is with you as well. He is with you. And so in every area of life, in every decision, in every turning point you find yourself at, you have two options. You can believe the lies that temptation brings, or you can believe the promise that God is with you. You can believe temptation's lies, or you can believe in God's promise of his presence. And so let's look at how Joseph embraced God being with him and how that helped him to obey. Firstly, we see that the Lord is with you when you succeed. The Lord is with you always, but he's particularly with you when you succeed. Joseph here turns lemons into lemonade. He takes a really, really difficult situation. He takes the worst workplace possible. He goes to Egypt far away from home. He ends up in Potiphar's house, who would have been the commander of the, the Egyptian army. So very likely a very stern man, a very difficult boss who probably had no margin for you making any sort of mistakes. He's the one who becomes Joseph's master. But we see in verse two, because of the presence of God, that Joseph became a successful man, and he was in the house of the, his Egyptian master. This says something about the way that God uses people. This says something about the way that God works in people, is that you may not be called to missions. You may not be called to vocational ministry, but make no mistake that God is at work in your work. Jeff Vandersell says that all of us are called to missions. We just get our paychecks from different places. You are called to mission as a follower of Jesus, that your workplace is a place to bring the good news of Jesus Christ. And you can honor God with your job because God is with you in your job. And this means that when you go to work on Monday, your work is not disconnected from God's work in your life. In fact, they are very much intertwined with one another. And, and if he's with Joseph, and he's with Joseph in his work, 
that it means that wherever you go, he's there. That wherever you work, God is there. And so your work is something so much bigger than you just going and collecting a paycheck. It's a means by which God is going to show you his grace. And so you could work in a terrible workplace like Joseph. These are probably some pretty terrible working conditions. I'm sure that the benefits weren't very good. And it shows you can see God's sufficiency and also see it as a way to become a blessing to others. Our success is in the hands of God. And Potiphar sees this, and he sees God's hand on Joseph, and he says, I'm going to do something in this guy's life in order to take advantage of the fact that there's just something different about him. Now, does Potiphar look at Joseph and say, okay, it, it has to be the God of the Bible? Does he look at Joseph and says, it's the God of Jacob and Abraham and Isaac? And no, it's just there's clearly something different about him. He always seems to go above and beyond. His work always seems to be excellent. And if you're a Christian, you should be evidently a Christian at work. And here's what I don't mean. I don't necessarily mean that you're you know, using your lunch break to like start you know, street preaching people. I'm not talking about that. Maybe you have a workplace that that works. I don't know. What I'm talking about though is people should look at you and say, man, she works really hard. She puts in excellent work. He doesn't take shortcuts. He's ethical. She goes out of her way to make sure that other people are cared for. He's not anxious. He doesn't complain. He doesn't have a bad attitude. And the question is, is it apparent in the way that you work and the way you succeed that your hope lies not in your work but in the Lord? Is it apparent in your efforts? Is it apparent in your attitude toward work? God, God blesses Joseph, and he makes every opportunity of, of the things that Potiphar has entrusted to him. You see this in verse 4. He's found favor. Joseph, Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. That He saw Joseph's work ethic. He saw how good he was and said, I'm going to put you over everything. In verse 5, we see how this prospers Potiphar from the time that he had made him overseer in his house and over all that he had. The Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. Everything he touched was successful. And in verse 6, we see that Potiphar realizes he's hit the jackpot. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Potiphar, has hit, he's trying to scale his business, and he's realized, I need to hire somebody. So I found this Joseph, who's like the perfect COO to run his company. He is every business owner's dream, so he can just prop his feet up and catch up on Ted Lasso and collect paychecks. Like, this is the dream. Now, here's what Joseph could have done. Joseph could have seen his success and said, it's all about me. He could have believed the lie that the root of all of his success was not the blessing of the Lord, but it was up to his hard work. And he could have said, why should I work hard when I'm not really benefiting from this? I'm just going to work hard enough to just not get fired. I could have had a terrible, he could have had a terrible attitude toward his boss. He could have complained. He could have had a sour disposition walking in on Monday morning, looking like he had had coffee in two years. He could have, he could have done that. He could have taken advantage of his position and abused power and embezzled money. He could have done all of these things saying, I'm the one who did all of this and I deserve it. But Joseph had a different perspective that it was the Lord who prospered his work. 
And here's what happens when you see that it's actually God who's with you when you're successful. Number one is you'll stay humble. God gets the glory. It's not you or your effort, but you realize that this this job, this opportunity, this season could easily be taken away and is a gift from God, and it causes you to be humble. Secondly, not getting what you want won't crush you. Failure is not going to destroy you. And I want to be careful when we read a passage like this that we say, okay, if I'm just come to church and I just read my Bible and I try to be near to God, then God's going to kind of a one-to-one input-output give me success. Sometimes you don't get the promotion. Sometimes you get overlooked. Sometimes somebody else gets credit for what you've done. Others get ahead at your expense. You look at other people and think, man, why are they so successful? But not getting what you want won't crush you. When you see God is with you, you realize that work won't become your identity. Your identity doesn't rise and fall with what your performance report looked like or eval looked like. And since it's God's presence with me, the pursuit of success doesn't make you who you are. And what this means is that you can go home on time. You can take a vacation. You can be with your family because when you seek first the kingdom of God, you see that God works the rest of it out and you realize that work becomes a means to bless other people. What if you were to go to work tomorrow, not bent on success, but with this question in mind, how do I do good work today that both honors God and blesses people? How do I do good work today that honors God and blesses people? Joseph took this approach. He said, I'm here in Potiphar's house. The situation is not ideal, but I've been given all this power and this responsibility. I'm going to do all of this to the best of my ability because I trust God. God is with me. I'm going to make sure that all of Potiphar's affairs and all of his work is the best it possibly can be. And so what this means is that if you're a teacher and you're thinking, yay, summer, which go ahead, enjoy summer. But when you go back in the fall, What would it look like if you were to look at your kids and say, the worst kid here is made in the image of God? How do I spark imagination to learn? If you're a banker, how how are you going to be ethical and do things in a way that honor God and doesn't take advantage of others for profit? If you're an engineer, how do you go into your workplace to develop products and processes that help people flourish? And if we approach work this way, we become a blessing to other people. Secondly, the Lord is with you when you are tempted most. Now, we see here at the end of verse 6 that, temp- that trouble is brewing. Temptation is brewing. It says, now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. What exactly does that mean? That means that he is disgustingly good looking. Like it's infuriating. Like he hit the genetic jackpot. It says that he is, he is handsome in form, which means that that dude's muscles have muscles. He is a very well-built man. He is a ninth ab like Lego Batman. He is, he has an Instagram workout account. He is a very good looking man. But not only does he have big muscles, it says that he is handsome in appearance, which means he has a pretty face. He's, I don't know, whoever you want to think about, Idris Elba. I don't know. I'm thinking somebody like that. He's noticeably attractive. And this runs in his family because Rachel, his mother, was described as incredibly beautiful His great-great-great-grandmother, Sarah, was also described in the same way, and we saw how it brought trouble for both of them. And we notice that Potiphar's wife takes notice of this. This is in verse 7. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes 
on Joseph. Again, I want to be careful here. What I am not saying is that all women are temptresses. And that has been, passages like this have been used and abused, and they've been used in a way to say that men and women shouldn't even like speak to one another. The church should have healthy friendships between men and women. We are working together for the glory of God. I want to be very clear about that. But Potiphar's wife is, a, is, a, is an example of how t- sexual temptation can attack and how it can shipwreck our faith. Now, you may be asking, why is it that we keep talking about sex so much recently? And why do we keep having to send our elementary age kids out of the service? I'm not choosing these, I promise. Uh, It's the Bible. We're just reading the Bible. We're going verse by verse. Um, And the Bible talks about it a lot because this is a pervasive struggle. Most marriages end because of infidelity. Most, Most problems and heartache and betrayals and pain often end because of sexual sin. So what I want to do, though, is I want to show us how temptation attacks and then how we can approach temptation, how we can address it. So how temptation attacks, these are some points from Alistair Begg, who's a fantastic pastor in Cleveland. He's the king of alliteration, so all of these start with an S. He says that temptation attacks us by being subtle. It started with the eyes. Potiphar's wife saw Joseph, and then her eyes lingered there. And it probably didn't start in a, in a way that seemed glaringly sinful, it probably started with some glances and then some, some smiles and then just lingered around to be near him. And she didn't just throw herself at him. And this tells us that we need to be careful and we need to guard our hearts because the subtlety of temptation is a slow fade into danger. If you find yourself wanting more time with someone that you shouldn't, you're slowly letting your guard down. You're slowly letting your standards down. You're, you're lingering on that website. This seems borderline a little too long. You're, the things you're watching on Netflix, you're scrolling through Instagram and you pause on certain things. And so this doesn't just have to be sexual sin. It can be anything. It can be greed. You're scrolling through and you see those influencers on Instagram and you see those lifestyle people and you're like, man, I want a house like that. I want a situation like that. I want a husband like that. I want money like that. It can breed discontentment. It's subtle. But secondly, it's striking. The subtlety of temptation leads to an attack. The desire gave way to temptation. She sees him, and over time, eventually, she looks at him and says, lie with me. She waits for him to let his guard down, and she attacks. I don't know if you've ever seen Planet Earth. Anybody ever watched Planet Earth? beautiful, it's fantastic. The, probably the most famous scene in planet Earth is the one with the little lizard. And there's all the snakes on the island. And if you've not listened to Snoop Dogg narrate that, I promise it is worth your time. It is so good. Um, I'm not going to repeat that this morning. But there's this, you see the lizard sitting there and it's alert for just a second. But the moment it lets its guard down, the snakes attack. And it's the same way with temptation. There's a subtle approach and then it strikes. So Joseph, to his credit, refuses. He says, no. He says, I'm not going down this road, but temptation doesn't end the first time you say no. It is also sustained. It doesn't stop. Verse 10, it says that she spoke to Joseph day after day, kept coming, kept coming back. Temptation is not going to stop. It is persistent. I'm sure she was like, come on, Joseph. You know you want to. Aren't I beautiful? Wouldn't this be enjoyable? 
You work hard. My husband isn't attentive. You deserve to be loved. And she keeps trying every tactic. It said he would not listen to her, lie beside her, or be with her. He wouldn't listen to her words. He wouldn't be near her. He was doing everything he could, but she was looking for that vulnerability that she could attack at. One of my favorite movies growing up as a kid was Jurassic Park. And there was a line in the movie that talked about the intelligence of the velociraptors that they would actually look for weak points in the fence. They would keep attacking the fence, looking for vulnerability. Temptation is the same way. It's looking for when you're tired. It's looking for when it's late at night. It's looking for when you're hungry or lonely or you feel disconnected. And fourthly, because of this, temptation is strategic. Potiphar's wife makes one final bold attack, verse 11. But one day when he went into the house to do his work, none of the men of the house was there. In the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. Now, she waited till he's alone, maybe even planned this, maybe even sent the other servants on an errand. She catches him by the garment in this opportune moment when he's at his lowest and his loneliness, loneliest. And sometimes temptation is strategic that it will even attack you when you're on a spiritual high. Sunday after you leave, your, you leave church, after you leave community group, after you've had a great time of prayer and time with the Lord, temptation will strike you in that moment. So how do we address temptation? A few ideas here that are helpful. Number one, it is possible to resist. The New Testament tells us that there's no temptation that the Lord has not given us the ability to face and run from. He refuses. And knowing Joseph's family history, it seems like he would be the most likely guy to just give in to this. It seems like it's inevitable. And I've been doing, I've had the opportunity to do sermon prep with our Gen Send interns this summer. And one of the observations as we were going through this is someone said, man, there are good guys out there. That's a striking comment that it feels like when you're on the dating scene, you're looking and going, man, there is just no one who wants to pursue godliness. It doesn't seem that there's anyone who values their faith, anyone who wants to put Jesus first. That, that sex isn't just some sort of expectation. Let me tell you this, it doesn't have to be normal. You can resist. You don't have to buy into the lie that you have to give in to your desires. You can deny yourself. And leaning on God's presence fostered several reasons in Joseph's ability to resist. One was he did, wasn't willing to abuse the trust he'd been given. Verse 8, he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. Realizing God is ultimately giving him this position. Verse 9, he said he, he knew this was another person's wife. He's not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife, knowing that this is just off limits. And lastly, he sees the wickedness of sin. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? I'm not going to define joy and desire and goodness on my own. That God says sex is for the confines of marriage, that it, can be, it can't just be about fulfilling my desires. Because 1 Corinthians 6 says that we become one with someone. And the issue of that is we need to have a, a theology of the body as Christians that our body and our soul, our spirit are not disconnected. They're intertwined. This is for deepening trust with someone through a whole life commitment. Now, as I'm saying these things, I'm not trying to guilt you, I promise. I really am not. And when you hear things like this, like that sex should be for marriage and things like that, it, that may seem regressive to you. 
That, that may be, you're thinking, man, like nobody in Boston actually believes this. Very few do. But I want you to have an open mind with me if this is a struggle for you. What if God is not after restricting you, but actually helping you find the deepest joy and satisfaction possible? And what we see is that it doesn't come from simply just fulfilling every desire you have. Sigmund Freud said that our spiritual longings are actually frustrated sexual longings. But the scriptures tell us that sexual desires are ultimately frustrated spiritual longings. That every desire we have is ultimately a desire for God. The second way that we address temptation is you have to flee. You have to run from it. There's a lie that strength means just simply enduring. It's it's not your willpower that's going to get you through this. It's fleeing. And our fleeing has to be principled. We have to believe God's word is good and true and that he wants what's best for us. It has to be practical. You need a plan. You need to have some sort of plan to flee temptation. And this isn't just sexual temptation, but any temptation. And so I want to give you an acronym uh, from John Piper. The acronym is the word ANTHEM. And this word is really a helpful acronym. The first thing is A, avoid. Do whatever you can to not put yourself in a situation. If alcoholism is a problem, don't go to a bar. If, you know, if there's temptation with, your, with, with the internet, be careful about doing that while you're alone. Avoid it as best you can. Say no, in. Quit. He says that quickly, within the first five seconds of temptation, you're probably going to decide which way you go. You have to very quickly and decisively say no. T is for turn. You have to violently turn away from sin and temptation towards the satisfying promises of Christ. You're not just turning away from something, you're turning towards something. And as you do that, H, you have to hold on to the promises of Christ. And what you do is you actually hold on to those promises in your mind and you hold on to them firmly and you let them push out every other desire. And what this should lead you to is E, enjoy you enjoy a better satisfaction that you actually treasure Jesus. Psalm 90 verse 14 says, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. That there's no greater satisfaction than knowing Jesus himself. And then lastly, M, move. You gotta go do something different. This is very practical. Do something enjoyable. Do something productive. Do something that gets your eyes off of what's tempting you. And this, I think, is where community is really important. We're going to be restarting community groups in September. Friendship, having someone that you can call and contact and go spend some time with is going to be really helpful. So it's going to be principle. It's got to be practical. It's also got to be purposed. Tim Keller says that self-control is not basically the will suppressing the desires of the heart, but it's all the desires of the heart being reordered all the loves of the heart being reordered by an overmastering, passionate, supreme love. We are replacing that desire with a better desire to long after Jesus. So we have to, we have to realize that it's possible to resist. We have to realize we have to flee temptation, but then realizing it may cost you. Addressing temptation may be costly. Potiphar's wife decides to make Joseph's life, his life a living hell. Verse 13 And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to lie with me, uh, to, to me, to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. She uses his ethnicity against him. 
She says, that Hebrew, and, and this reminds me so much of the story of Emmett Till. If you've never read the book, The Blood of Emmett Till, it tells the story from the 50s of Emmett Till, a young Chicago 14-year-old black boy who went down to Mississippi and was wrongfully accused of sexually assaulting a white woman. It very much reminds me of that, that he was, that was used against him. It, co- it was costly for Joseph. Verses 16 through 18, it cost him a relationship with Potiphar. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story saying, the Hebrew servant whom you've brought among us came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. He came here to mock me, to laugh at me. And you let him, you brought him here. And this ends up costing Joseph his job and his position. Verse 19, as soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. He loses Potiphar's trust. He's thrown in jail. But we also need to see that this also costs Joseph something else. He's a slave. And this is likely the only opportunity he could see on the horizon to have a physical relationship with a woman. This cost him immediate gratification. This cost him satisfaction. And it can be tempting to settle for the lower standards of of the world because of what we might lose. I have to do this or do that to be loved. I have to cut corners to keep my job. I, have, I can't lose my status. But the lie we're being told is that God will not be enough for us. We have to, so how do we actually deny ourselves? How do we actually delay gratification because of a better gratification to come? How do we know the temptation is lying to us and there's something better out there for us? Lastly, the Lord is with you for a bigger purpose. The Lord is with you for a bigger purpose. And it's hard for Joseph to see this because he hits rock bottom. There is no further that he could possibly go. Verse 21, we see that he lands in jail. But there we also see the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. That in the lowest point that Joseph could find himself, the Lord was still with him. He finds favor with the jailer. He's at his lowest, and that's where he finds purpose. And in the kingdom of God, sometimes the way up is down. What if God is taking you through a really low place to do something you can't even see yet? What if God has something greater in mind? What if God has something to to redeem something in your life or to restore something in someone else's life? Joseph goes from jail cell to the leader over all of Egypt, and we see what Jesus tells us, that it's the servant and the least who inherit the kingdom of God. But also, what if your lowest moments have a greater purpose in God's plan overall? That it's something bigger than you just getting through life unscathed. God sustains Joseph from the lowest point in order to rescue his brothers, but ultimately God keeps this family going to be with you, to be with me. Because Jesus came from this family as the living proof that God is with you. The name that John 1 describes Jesus as is Emmanuel, which means God with us. That Jesus came to be with you as a servant who perfectly obeyed. 
That Jesus came with you to be a servant who faced temptation and did not give in. One who was wrongfully accused for your sake. One who took your punishment on the cross. And one who rose victoriously to show you that God is with you. And that means that you can face everyday success and everyday failure because Jesus is with you. You can face temptation and resist because Jesus is with you. That when you fall into sin, Jesus is with you. And when you're in the lowest places, Jesus is with you. Let's pray. 